In August 1992, when the dog days were drawing to an end, I set off to walk the county of Suffolk in the hope of dispelling the emptiness that takes hold of me whenever I have completed a long stint of work. And in fact, my hope was realized up to a point. For I have seldom felt so carefree as I did then, walking for hours in the day through the thinly populated countryside, which stretches inland from the coast. I wonder now, however, whether there might be something in the old superstition that certain ailments of the spirit and of the body are particularly likely to beset us under the sign of the dog star. At all events, in retrospect, I became preoccupied not only with the unaccustomed sense of freedom, but also with the paralyzing horror that had come over me at various times when confronted with the traces of destruction reaching far back into the past that were evident even in that remote place. Perhaps it was because of this that, a year to the day after I began my tour, I was taken into hospital in Norwich in a state of almost total immobility. It was then that I began in my thoughts to write these pages. I can remember precisely how, upon being admitted to that room on the eighth floor, I became overwhelmed by the feeling that the Suffolk expanses I had walked the previous summer had now shrunk once and for all to a single, blind, insensate spot. Indeed, all that could be seen of the world from my bed was the colorless patch of sky framed in the window. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're glad to have you back, listeners, for what is our final episode of Season 2. We finally made it through our long march through Middlemarch and all of the related books. And here we are. We're ending with Friedrich's last pick of the season, W.G. Sebald's The Rings of Saturn. We're going to get into that in just a minute, but first, a few items of business. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can get our podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can download us, thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. And you can email us, thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. We'd love to get feedback from you um, on any of these episodes, on thoughts you have about potential future seasons. We're in the midst of plotting season three as we speak. We'll have some more information on that soon. So do make sure you follow us on social media so you can stay on top of where we're going and what we're doing next. Finally, just as a little bonus to you all, we do have um, at the end of this episode, one final little cherry on top, so to speak, which is our final postmodern food factory of the season, the return of an old classic reborn. Uh, So I won't say more than that right now but you can check that out at the end of the episode it's like our little holiday gift to you this will be releasing uh in the midst of the holiday season so you can have a little bonus content as a treat for now though we got to conclude this season by talking about the rings of saturn and and i'm super excited to talk about this text this is my first time reading this this is friedrich's pick and i'm going to let him talk a little bit about why he chose this 
text, which I think is a really marvelous concluding text for us this season. But first, as always, I'm going to give a little bit of a plot summary. We were joking in the last episode on on the short stories of Borges that this task of summarizing texts just gets harder and harder every time. It's finally reached its apex here. I don't know if I could possibly summarize the Rings of Saturn to you, dear listener, but I'm going to try. The Rings of Saturn is a book by W.G. Sebald. Sebald was a, a German who then was uh, for a long time a professor at, at a British university, uh, a professor of European literature at a British university, and then also an author on top of that. And The Rings of Saturn is, I guess it's a sort of a novel, it's sort of a memoir, it's sort of a piece of travel writing in which a, a fictionalized version, I think we're supposed to take it, of Sebald um, himself takes a walking tour around sort of East uh, England, like the sort of Eastern coast area of England. But it's one of those journeys that it kind of never really goes anywhere. Like he's going, to, he's visiting some various places, but along the way he keeps getting distracted. And so it's this wonderfully elliptical book in which he's sort of just in his own head. And as he's walking, he's thinking about these interconnecting lines, both of his own life, of people he's met before, um, experiences he's had, and then also various points of the past, so both sort of the British imperial past, the European past, including touching on things like the Holocaust, but then also sort of even the deeper past of intellectual history and uncovering unlikely connections in intellectual history. It's, as I sort of said, it's an elliptical book. It's a very, in some ways, hard to follow book uh, because he's he's going in his own swoops of logic. There is almost no plot. I mean, I'm trying to describe the book to you, but there's almost no actual plot. He walks from place to place. He remembers things. But as he does so, he's sort of painting us a picture of an excavation of the past and of human history and human thought um, and how it appears to him, Sebald, in the present moment in the, the, you know, the 1990s. So um, that's it. I mean, that, that's kind of what's going on over 300 pages. It's, it's a fascinating book. It's a lot of fun to read, but it's, it's very different than other things, even other things that we've read on here. And we've read some weird stuff, but I think this is just about the weirdest thing we've read, and I, and I love it. I'm going to toss it over to you, Friedrich, and let you talk a little bit about why you chose this to, to pair with Middlemarch and, and just what you think you want to get out of our discussion of it. I think a nice, a nice plot summary is just a man goes for a walk. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> but so much Also, the contents page has everything has, yeah. that he's just kind of looking at and that sort of like... I think of it as like kind of a 19th century chapter heading Sort of style. Mark Twain-esque, yeah, yeah. Right, so one of them is like Fisherman on the Beach, The Natural History the natural history of the Herring, George Wyndham Lestrange, A Great Herd of Swine, The Reduplication of Man, Orbis Tertius. And those are the things that he thinks about as he's walking, mm. you know, so it's not false that that's kind of a plot summary right there for you, but um, it's also not entirely what the plot is. No, no, not at all entirely. And, and that's what's interesting about it is it captures so much. To, to, to get to the question, uh, why why with Middlemarch, why this book? You know, we talked a lot about how Middlemarch is a provincial novel attempting to sort of depict how a people relate to their histories and each other and how those things define them by looking at the local. And this is a person in a place that's obviously provincial, going for a walk and observing things. And yet we're getting these deep histories in his mind based on things that he's seeing, things that he's recalling. 
and it's sort of getting an inverted version of the approach we've taken to talking about Middlemarch that he's obviously done a lot of deep research for this <laughs> impressive research, but he's showing like the histories of a place in an almost historical academic way and the interconnections between those things kind of are loose and happen in almost a dreamlike way. And so if we're talking about the realism of Middlemarch being this historical social realism in which people, their selves come out of those situations, for me, what's interesting about Sebald is that he's putting himself into these histories and, and trying to make sense of how they're connected, but it's all done in this way that's sort of associative or coincidental or seemingly coincidental. And there's some interesting parts where he's talking about how these seeming coincidences can kind of bear down on you and determine things about your life. And just from a perspective of British history and British imperialism, it's a nice wrap up to the sort of undercurrents of Millmarch being the things that make up British wealth, right? It's place in an, in an, in an empire at the center of an empire. And here we have someone sort of unraveling that system and everything that's brought that country to where it is today and talking about the train that he sees that palimpsestically has been painted over and beneath it you see the Chinese dragon and then it brings him to a reverie on how that perhaps was brought there after it was made for the young emperor and he talks about the empress dowager and her silk production and all of this stuff that's interconnected and and that's just sort of gotten there in this seemingly effortless, dreamlike way, but that's involved a lot of, of deep research. It's a compelling alternative way of thinking about realism. And that's going to take a lot of teasing out and figuring out what I mean when I just said that. But if that makes sense to the two of you as a jumping off point, I think it's it's an exciting, different type of realism. And that's what drew me to it. It's a great combination for me of a, a way of thinking about history that puts us between Middlemarch and Borges, who we just talked about. Of all the people who have been influenced as writers by Borges, and Sebald is one of them, he really stands out as quite different from the others. You might think of somebody like Thomas Pynchon or David Foster Wallace or Robert Coover maybe or something. Some people who want to take big experimental risks in big, complex, elaborate systems that remind you of the kind of hallmarks of postmodern difficulty and intense large systems in a way Sebald is doing all of those things but it really doesn't feel like those other novelists where there's a huge ironic push out of the feelings of the characters or the the seriousness of the subject matter you don't get that same irony and that same toying, joco-serious, clever, careful irony that you have in Borges, in a lot of Borges anyway, in Sebald. That's all taken out. You get the sense of a pretty serious person who isn't kind of taking these walks uh, to joke around. There's some kind of almost pilgrimage of seriousness going on to all the sites that we're going to. But at the same time, the way that it's written and the way that it's all placed together is meant to be this next sort of onion skin page slice away from reality and in between fiction where is it a memoir no is it non-fiction no i believe sebald wanted it to remain to be called fiction but just by the fact that he kind of has a different understanding of what non-fiction ought to be or something, right? Or what history ought to be. For him, it has to be kind of much more precise than he's even capable of doing. And so you almost get like the fact that 
the word fiction appears on his books is itself a kind of tragedy and helps us enter into this kind of tragic space of his book and his writing, right? That he can't really put together an ordered history. Such a thing is totally beyond him and maybe beyond anybody. The best he can do is associate different things from different times and kind of label them and put them together to give us just a glimpse of or a sense of what that was like or what that felt like but we can't you know really enter history or even talk about history in kind of finished decided way we can just walk one way through it and get a sense it's like a very foggy place that we can enter but it's never clear I was going to ask if I can give an example of how this narration functions, because I think for the listeners who haven't read this, you should definitely read it. But I think a, a kind of a dip into a chapter to look at it might be helpful. But if you want to, sorry, if you want to speak first, Soren, to what Carl was saying, go ahead. Okay, just just really quickly. Can, can I make a cheeky suggestion? <laughs> I almost feel like this is like what it would be like to be inside of Casabon's head to some degree <laughs> where it's this free association of ideas. And it's like, you can never quite complete one thing because you're immediately thinking of another. But of course here it's like some sort of success over and against Casabon because Casabon maybe is convinced of the need to complete and create this serious work of nonfiction, as you sort of say, Carl. And instead, Sebald sort of embraces his weakness and his fault here. And he's able Mm -hmm. to finish in that way because he knows like, it's not possible to finish so I can just finish. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I like that sort of idea of like, it does feel very, it's very solitary and very melancholy and very serious, but not in a, not in a somber or grim way, but just a serious way. Like, like Casabon is sort of in Middlemarch, but because Sebal can sort of recognize the work is never actually done, he's then able to at least bring a work to some conclusion, right? And finish it and get it published, right? Unlike Casabon. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Friedrich, you, you, you know, you wanted to take us, I think, into a piece of the text. So let's go there and just kind of expose the readers to how this works in the situation of the book itself. Sure. And I think hopefully this elucidates not just how the text works, but I th- one of like a, a point of view Sebald might have on history and living in history and living at the end, a point of history that's moving forward forever, that you attempt to make meaning out of it and you attempt to give it order, but it's it's always moving as well, right? So for instance, he has, he has a chapter that begins with Roger Casement, the great sort of anti-imperial exposer of crimes in Africa and South America. And it moves quickly from Casement to Joseph Conrad, because he's the more famous figure in that friendship or that at least that association who he refers to as his, his Polish name, Conrad Korzeniowski. And he gives a sort of biography of Conrad and we're deep into that world of biography when he, he starts getting to the point of what Casement was doing and what Conrad was doing, which was the ugliness of Belgian colonization of Central Africa. And once he gets to that, then we hit another nested narrative level in which he begins to talk about how that manifests in the ugliness of the architecture and urban design of Brussels itself and how that colonial past has produced something in Europe that's just like breathtakingly ugly to him and he can't stand looking at the city or being in it and he blames that on what they've done to Central Africans the violence they've and atrocities they've committed there and then he, he brings us to the memorial of Waterloo as an especially ugly thing in Brussels. But then that transition brings us to a sort of narration of what it would be like to be participating in the Battle of Waterloo and the ugliness of war in general. And then stepping out from that, he's kind of wandering in Brussels and saying, and and I saw a hunchbacked woman and 
wasn't she ugly too? And Belgium has these ugly people. And there are these nested levels before he finally then brings us back to Conrad and brings us back to Casement and then finishes Casement's tragic life story when he's eventually executed for treason by the British government. And I feel that that's indicative of his style, that there's there's a person he's interested in, a thing he's interested in, but it leads to these other thoughts, which then leads to other historical moments, which then leads to other thoughts, but eventually kind of brings it back out. And the main maybe thing that recurs throughout, the thread, pun intended, that recurs throughout is silk. He keeps talking about silk production in China and, and the silkworms that were brought in the, the hollowed out staff to Europe. Uh, so that silk production could happen in Italy. And then he refers to silken ropes and people being hanged uh, as a punishment by silken ropes a few times, and it eventually ends with the the mourning gowns of taffeta silk. And I feel like these sort of dreamlike associations and nested narration are are the style that he's known for, obviously. But they're also, for me at least as a reader, a different relation to realism or history than we've talked about so far and one that depends much more on you as a writer and you as an observer who's connecting things merely by some sort of dreamlike shamanistic whatever and it's not as deliberate as someone writing a history book on the Taiping Rebellion or something like that and yet it provides these sort of stark and startling insights that those books can't. I'm always telling my writing students you have to work in your transitions to help the reader follow the logic by which you're moving from one idea to another. And I stand by that when I'm teaching my writing students, but it's like (laughs) Sebald is like building those things out and then he just erases the middle. Right. And you're like, what, like where is the movement of thought here? But then there's such a strength in the intuitiveness of what he's doing that you can still follow it, even though there's not an explicit branching. And so, yeah, okay. I'm, following this casement guy and now I'm following Conrad and I'm in Belgian architecture and I'm back to casement. You're absolutely right that it forces you as the reader, I think, to have a bit more imagination to try to follow those leaps. But at the same time, it never feels absurd or ridiculous. You buy it completely. You, You buy what he's selling in terms of the movement of his mind. And it really is like watching somebody think you're you're observing him as he thinks through these different things and sometimes that involves memories flooding in or little bits of historical information that wash over him as he's thinking through these things it's a really fascinating technique where where ideas are important and the connections between ideas are important but they're not always completely obvious you have to take some sort of leap as you're reading along with him Connections are intuitive, but they are things of the same sort of platonic form in some way that Mm. you grasp from the beginning. I mean, Thomas Brown, Joseph Conrad, figures from the Taiping Rebellion, Edward Fitzgerald, Chateaubriand. There's this aesthetic, high aesthetic sense, high aesthetic quality that life has to have. There's something extremely important to strive for and die for. And then there's like this large pessimism or a fatalism in the, like their senses of life you know that they, they all revolve around those same kinds of ideas and it's those ideas which i think sebald sort of masterfully leaves largely unsaid because they're the kind of things we maybe know very well about some of these figures leaves them in the background remembers that you will associate them for him and then just connects different 
more concrete and material historical aspects amongst these people and where they came from and how what they were writing about was connected to some history. And then he goes into that by bringing all of that together without stating some of those larger views and points that really connect all those people. We just can feel that like this is a series of dreams by the same dreamer or something. One connection that I thought of in connection to Middlemarch, sort of on top of everything else um, that you brought us to, Friedrich, is the way in which Sebald seems very fascinated by, I think you said, used the phrase, the wreckage of history, but the way in which he's sort of patiently leading us through this historical detritus that's built up over time, and he's kind of trying to, to, to work that away and get at what's underneath. And I don't know why this is exactly. Maybe, Carl, you can shed some light on this. But I found myself thinking about the, the British poet Geoffrey Hill uh, a fair bit as I was reading this. The sense of, like, Hill has this deep sense of British history being there as this, like, very rough and unmanageable thing right like he writes poems about the when the romans were there and then suddenly you're like also at the time of the holocaust and it's like these very bizarre associations in terms of historical moments but it's that same sort of thing here in sebald i think it's like he he's going around and looking at these like man-made objects and then also kind of looking at nature and trying to figure out what's underneath it's almost it's like archaeological in its nature in some way I, you know, I think about that in connection to Middlemarch. Of course, we talked all the time about history. It keeps coming back, keeps returning. Sorry, there it is. But but Sebald has something of that same sense, right? Like that 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 the past is there, layered, and sometimes it's really ugly in it. But it needs to be uncovered and it needs to be reckoned with to some degree. I wonder, like, does he give us a new perspective on this because he, like Joseph Conrad, is an outsider to Britain? Right. And of course, he comes from a country with its own historical baggage from Germany. He's born in what 1944 in Germany. Right. So, of course, there's like this historical baggage that's attendant there on him. But at the same time, he's able to come to England and maybe make a, a deeper sense of sense out of the history, the, the British imperial history, than maybe an insider would be able to do. Yeah, I like the association with Hill. I think for Hill and Sebald. When one tries to write about history, there's this combination of like excavation and like archaeology, but also a sort of like muted violence. You're seeing this record of death and you can't help but be overwhelmed by an imagined violence that you're no longer privy to. That's kind of what history is um, when you exhume it, when you find all of its pieces and try to imagine what it was um you're left at that like overwhelming violence that you can't really feel or see in any serious way um i get that in hill and i get that in sebald too yeah there's a point where he he's thinking about this the whole book you know and the, the title rings of saturn is a metaphor for history it's another pure glass right and so on one page for me, he gets pretty explicit about it, and he says, This, then, I thought, as I looked round about me, is the representation of history. It requires a falsification of perspective. We, the survivors, see everything from above, see everything at once, and still we do not know how it was. The desolate field extends all around where once 50,000 soldiers and 10,000 horses met their end within a few hours. The night after the battle, the air must have been filled with death rattles and groans, now there is nothing but the silent brown soil. That's a very 
Jeffrey Hill-esque moment mm-hmm. too. And Thomas Brown, you know, is kind of interested in the these totems that we have from the past, uh, bones or relics or things that, you know, connote something violent, connote death, right? And the, the other thing we have to mention, um, otherwise we will be indicted about Sebald, right, is the pictures that he incorporates masterfully into his text. He always is using uh, photographs that he took or pictures of art, always like somewhat crude. The point is not that these are brilliant illustrated books with they're never in color but they're interesting kind of comments on what's happening in the text and here again we're also meant to look at them as like pieces excavated somehow from history and one of the first big ones is the famous i think it's it's rembrandt right the the anatomy the autopsy and so again it's to learn something we have to dig up somebody and rip them apart and paint it and it's pretty brutal but that is what learning is that is what history is and as he marks as he notes in that reading of that of the anatomy lesson none of the observers are observing the hand that's been stripped of flesh they're all observing the book (laughs) to see what it's supposed to look like in their chart (laughs) they're not attending to the actual violent thing that's in front of him and he talks about the dead man's face being in like agony as this is happening right yeah i think it's like the history of violence in a lot of ways. And I think people have, there was a recent criticism of Sabald that came out because anniversary or something like that. I don't remember who wrote it or where it was published. So I'm not being very helpful. And that person was like, why does everyone love Sabald? I don't love Sabald, right? He has no sense of humor. He's a little grim, but I think a a word we used to describe him was serious. And I appreciate that this is a book that's, and there's a few moments of like just a, a little bit of humor creeping out. I think he had, he talks about seeing someone being chased uh, through the city streets. And then he says, I had a horrible night. Like, and that to me was really funny that he just like transitions to his horrible night of sleep because he's thinking about this thing that he saw. That's being pretty charitable maybe, but <laughs> well, there's the moment where he fall, he's like falls asleep in front of the documentary. He's like watching this very serious documentary. <laughs> he, he's like, I just fell asleep. I couldn't dig he it. He pulled his chair up to the screen because <laughs> he was excited to watch it. And then he falls asleep. But yeah, nevertheless, he writes about it in great detail. <laughs> Um, but I appreciate his seriousness because he's treating a, a serious subject and he's saying like in all of these different ways, everything's tending toward its own destruction from the world of war to just the world of nature and uh, things that are made to be beautiful. It's all just sort of going to dissipate and going to fall apart. And I don't know. I don't have, a, I don't have an end point to that thought actually. <laughs> It, dis- it dissipated. It dissipated. Oh. <laughs> on these on these themes of excavation and uh, history and finding the right metaphor for what it is to write history or think about history and think about historical truth, what I think Sebald is kind of always touching on, and he's always, like Friedrich has said, centered on destruction or the destruction that must precede creation in mm-hmm. some way. The rings of Saturn are a thing, but they're are a thing only for having once been a planet that was destroyed and turned into this kind of like dust that can revolve Uh, and that's kind of all anything is and so it's an interesting philosophy of history that he's trying to give us so for Hegel you know there's a history that is important. It moves towards the, a certain kind of consciousness, a certain kind of goal or telos, and it has 
something that we can call purpose or world spirit about it, right? It's highly optimistic compared to Sebald's view. And for Nietzsche, it's not a, a goal-oriented motion, but it is still a eternal return where history can be something the heroic individual embodies or becomes sort of self-masterful in the from the long lens of history right but um, there's no circle or line to historical motion for Sebald it's just like the geological record a series of extinctions that people can pass through or pass over and there might be moments of surprise or revelation but that's like amidst relentless loss and that's all history is so I think he really puts himself he tries to put himself against part of that german tradition that he's coming out of but in a much different way and thinking about it archaeologically i think it is you could say it's as optimistic as the other two in a certain sense these moments of surprise are something genuine that kind of speaks to like what it's like to go through an archive of things and as he like lives his life either going to these places or not those moments of surprise are like what defines history for him and kind of punctuate his novels. Um, and he tries to write them in a way where they could be anywhere for you as a reader, those moments of surprise. I want to build on that for just a second, Carl, because uh, I, I like that point a lot. Another thing we talk a lot about in this season is sort of personal edification or cultivation. And I wonder if in some sense, like for Sebald, that's what history is. You could look at all those things and say like, well, what's the point of even doing history then if it's not going to lead somewhere productive? And I wonder if he would say, like, there's an apparent uselessness to it that, in fact, has a great deal of meaning. I'm thinking in particular of two incidents in the book. There's one incident very late in the book where he's talking to this wonderful, eccentric farmer who's building a model of the Temple of Jerusalem, like, just in his, his like, barn or something, right? He's just, like, he's got this incredibly detailed, intricate copy, as best he can tell, about the ancient Temple of Jerusalem. And, like, eventually people catch on to this and they're really interested in it but he says like the only value for him is that now his neighbors and his family don't think he's crazy anymore right because he spent so many years doing this and everybody's just like what are you doing you're nuts there's nothing here for you but he keeps going at it he knows it's useless by sort of the metrics of the world but he keeps building it he keeps making it more and more intricate and there's a wonderful like one reading of that is yeah okay it's very useless it's a, it is a sort of Casabon-esque enterprise but then for him it's clear that it has some very deep inherent meaning in that in that very task itself and and Sebald I think finds himself drawn to that to the the very uselessness of it and then there's another point very early in the book where he's talking about his friend Janine who's one of his colleagues at the university who's a Flaubert expert and this is what he says about her office this is a really wonderful description one of my favorite parts of the book he says Many a time at the end of a working day, Janine would talk to me about Flaubert's view of the world. In her office, where there were such quantities of lecture notes, letters, and other documents lying around that it was like standing amidst a flood of paper. On the desk, which was both the origin and the focal point of this amazing profusion of paper, a virtual paper landscape had come into being in the course of time, with mountains and valleys. Like a glacier when it reaches the sea, it had broken off at the edges, and established new deposits all around on the floor, which in turn were advancing imperceptibly towards the center 
of the room. And then skipping over a little bit, he says, Once when I remarked that sitting there amidst her papers, she resembled the angel in Durer's melancholia, steadfast among the instruments of destruction. Her response was that the apparent chaos surrounding her represented in reality a perfect kind of order, or an order which at least tended towards perfection. And the fact was that whatever she might be looking for amongst her papers, or her books, or in her head, she was generally able to find right away. I love that. Speaking of the archaeological view of history, like, this is her own landscape that's developed around her of the things of history, the the remembrances, right, the papers that are everywhere. And yet for her, there is an order there. There is a an immense findability of what she wants to get a hold of. And so there's that sort of inner meaning that's holding it together. And I wonder if those two images, like, are sort of part of what Sebald thinks about history, right? That there's this seeming just profusion of things everywhere that don't have any order. But then to the person who's actually examining them, there is an order and there is a meaning that comes out of trying to recoup that order, right? As the as the farmer is doing in the building of this histo- useless historical model. I think that's getting at something about what Sebald thinks about this practice for himself of trying to disentangle history. It seems so useless on the outside, but in fact, it is. There's a personal edification there that may then, in fact, eventually become communally edifying because, after all, we're reading the Rings of Saturn now. Just like the Library of Babel, I don't know how you don't have that reading at the end of the Library of Babel. Yeah. Yes, to return so to a previous a, a previous episode. Yes, no, there, there's an order there in the disorder. Sure, okay, good. I agree. I think that's why you know when people say this is like pessimistic or they they sort of parody this the way people parody Werner Herzog. That I think like like his countryman Herzog. They're both actually sort of seeing beauty all around them all the time, even though it's destructive. You know, that's just the nature of what it is. But Carl made a nice comparison between the rings of Saturn and and what Soren's saying here. Now we can bring into that model of the paper around them that's chaos that actually has order. And then the uh, pier glass in Middlemarch as these things that only appear to have order or patterns because of the way the light is held to them, because of our vantage point, because of the gravitational spin of the planet around which they orbit, whatever. I think that Sebald sees people sees himself as sort of you're a filter through which history is is moving and you're making meaning out of these things because you're finite like a library of Babel and uh, in an infinite world and you're trying to sort of see these things around you and how they can cohere in order to make sense of not just your world but of yourself and one of those instances where that comes up is in uh, when he's visiting his friend Michael Hamburger uh, a fellow writer and they're talking and thinking about Holderlin and how they have these coincidental historical overlaps in their lives. And I I mentioned this earlier that how this sort of coincidences of history are bearing down on you, not just your own choices and your own mistakes like in Middlemarch, but just the fact that you share a birthday with someone or something like that. He asks, does one follow in Holderlin's footsteps simply because one's birthday happened to fall two days after his, not even on the same day. Is that why one is tempted time and again to cast reason aside like an old coat to blah, blah, blah goes into all these examples. And then he said, across what distances in time do the elective affinities and correspondences connect? How is it that one perceives oneself in another human being or if not oneself, then one's own precursor? The fact that I first passed through British customs 33 years after his friend Michael that I'm now giving up think teaching, blah, blah, blah. We all have, we both have allergies to alcohol. None of these things are 
particularly strange, but why it was on my first visit to Michael's house, I instantly felt as if I lived or had once lived there in every respect precisely as he does, I cannot explain. All I know is that I stood there, and then he goes on to describe the space and kind of moves on from that point in the middle of a huge, long, several-page paragraph, which is typical of his style. And I just love that that's sort of this question of, like, what makes you up as a person and what has driven you to the point where you are? And then how do you recognize that in other people and see yourself in them, much in the way people do in Middlemarch, see themselves and their own failures or their own wishes in other people? And so much of it is just seems to be it's, it's because of how you're seeing it and attempting to make meaning out of it. And it just seems like so much accident most of the time. Yeah. Accident seems really important here. You know, I'm thinking of his, one of the stories he tells of Chateaubriand, who is this memoirist of the French revolution, essentially has to flee from the revolution. It's the, that very delicate touching story. He he sort of falls in love with this, the daughter of the, the English couple that he sort of fled and stayed with. And then they, they kind of offer her to him, like, like, don't you want to marry her? And he's like, ah, crap, I'm already married. Like, I don't have any relation with my wife. Like, I hate her. You know, I don't think about her at all, but like, I can't marry her. And then they meet again, like 20 years later and she's mid-married. She's got kids now. And they have this, like a few fleeting moments of this connection of what might've been, if only the accidents of history had been a little bit different. And then Sabald takes us kind of cosmically out and he says well like this is a couple of pages amidst this thousands of pages that Chateaubriand's writing but there's an attentiveness there to the accidents of history right he said like Chateaubriand said like if I had married her if I just pretended like I wasn't married and I had married her I probably would have never written anything right and so there's like these touchstone moments of accident shifting around but there's also Sebald like trying to make sense of it and I'm really drawn to the fact that he tries to insist that this same dissection that Rembrandt's painting, Thomas Brown would have been there. He, he must have been there at this anatomy lesson, right? So there's like this kind of an attempt to retrofit history some way, which I, I think is like at least, I mean, I think he's maybe partly serious, but also kind of partly, you know, is aware of like, there's might be some absurdity in this claim, but it's this attempt to make the accidents of history fit into some sort of pattern and then letting go of that very quickly, right? A desire to make sense but then the ability to then let go of that as well when you realize it doesn't actually fit quite quite the way you want it to. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it fiction for him. And I think in some cases he will doctor the images or change aspects of you know the actual history to make these kind of elective affinities that both of y'all are talking about. Yeah, for me what the point of these connections amounts to is something perhaps a little bit different. So again, if Middlemarch ends, you know, with a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs, I think for Sebald, it's unrest in visited tombs. And I think that's where he wants to keep us going. And when we get there, um, he has this great line at the end of the first chapter about Thomas Brown. Brown scrutinizes that which escaped annihilation for any sign of the mysterious capacity for transmigration he has so often observed in caterpillars and moths. The purple piece of silk he refers to then in the urn of Patroclus, what does it mean? And I think that sense of transmigration is, to go back to this sort of German historical tradition, or the German tradition of the history, uh, the philosophy of history, he wants to give us a certain kind of hermeneutic metaphor that involves depth. So when we can 
connect something through this kind of excavation and transmigrate it somehow. That's like what meaning is. You uncover meaning in this way, but also create it a little bit in the connections, which might not be the most historically accurate. But this is what makes all of this pessimism somewhat optimistic, is this idea of transmigration. You too might be a purple piece of silk in the urn of Patroclus someday that someone else might, because it was not restful enough, take out of a visited tomb. Should also note too that there's a that that passage when he's visiting the the old churches and churchyards that have crumbled into the sea on the coast, and that like yeah, mm-hmm. talking about unvisited tombs and visited like the tombs also become just these sites of annihilation where the place you're supposed to have your middle march rests are just washed away, and you, and you try to reclaim them historically, but yeah, I had a question for each of you about the ending. I don't know if you're unprepared for this. I don't want to catch you off guard. It's just a really small. It's just a really small point that I found interesting. That he does this like beautiful. He like brings us back to the silk, which is recurring, and talks about the the, the weavers in Norwich who are making the silk for mourning uh, wear in the 19th century. And then he brings us back to Sir Thomas Brown, of course. I'll just read this part. And Sir Thomas Brown, who was the son of a silk merchant and may well have had an eye for these things, remarks in a passage of the Pseudodoxia Epidemica that I can no longer find, that in the Holland of his time it was customary, in a home where there had been a death, to drape black mourning ribbons over all the mirrors and all canvases, depicting landscapes, or people, or the fruits of the field, so that the soul as it left the body would not be distracted on its final journey, either by a reflection of itself, or by a last glimpse of the land now being lost forever. So there's a lot in that ending that we've begun to talk about with... uh, things being lost forever, uh, reflections in which you catch yourself. But I actually want to ask a question about that Sir Thomas Brown Pseudodoxia Epidemica, which Soren snickered at as I read it, because he said that I can no longer find. And I feel like throughout the entire book, he's been so precise with everything, uh, when it occurs historically, where he read it, who cited whom. And then here at the very end, he, he's just like, I can no longer find this passage that I'm referring to. You're first to it nonetheless. But there's this like moment of just, I don't know if it's giving up, if it's uncertainty or what it is. I was curious what you thought. Yeah, to me that reads like a, I don't know, something like a joke or, you know, not, <laughs> not you know, it's a funny moment in the text because he's trying to wrap, he's trying to bring everything home and wrap it up. But he's admitting in the moment like, oh, I don't actually have this to hand like I'm supposed to. Like it's been lost among the mm. waves of paper mm. somewhere or other. He's like a bad grad student where you put the footnote in and you're like, I swear I saw this somewhere. I just didn't write the page number down. This has maybe happened to me before in my life. Um, right. Um, it, it is that sort of funny moment of like he's he's lost control for a second in, in a time when he's trying to be precise. And so I think that's a nice I, – I think that is – I mean it's certainly intentional on his part. Yeah, oh yeah. That he's he's putting it in there at the end, right? That it's there's a sense of letting go of control at the end. He's kind of slipping off into nothingness i like that soren and i i like the idea of it as a sort of uh forgotten footnote that it ultimately in the same way you as a graduate student probably were like my point stands without the footnote <laughs> here his point stands like it doesn't it, it he may have forgotten it but like the other memories and dreamlike things that are occurring here what matters is the how that associates with everything that's come before it and the citation is thing we think of as historically important is less important to his depiction of the historical i mean for me this 
I'm not sure if I can answer your question directly or, or not, but for me, this ending compounds what I was talking about before about the transmigration of the soul, mm-hmm. because here the soul is maybe literally transmigrating uh, in what he's describing, but it's also the, it's like the forgetting of all of these acts of forgetting. And so when that happens, you know, is it like pure nothingness or something that you were going into? It's got that weird sort of like bittersweet sort of nirvana aspect of, you know, wishing yourself into nothingness is somehow benevolent or transcendent, but it feels, you know, certainly to a certain kind of Western mind, very sad or melancholic (laughs) at the same time. Right. So that's part of what I thought at that point, but I I would totally uh, second Soren's point that it's entirely intentional to perform this forgetting where it's to his point about things breaking down and losing their originality or their original context and that's where that's an inevitability i no longer know where it was in the episode that you said this carl but you brought our attention to the photographs that are in the book and you rightly pointed out these are sort of a trade you know a trademark for table like that's the one thing i knew about before reading this book is like okay he, I imitated yeah he puts photographs in here can i ask a, a, maybe an inappropriate question maybe you all can defend this to me this is the one part of the book to me that i was like I can take it or leave it. It did not feel that great to me. Like the the photographs, they were photographs. And you kind of made the claim, Carl, maybe you can back this up and convince me of this, that they were working. I don't think you said this exactly, but like working kind of dialectically on the reader. Like he's commenting on things to me. And maybe I just wasn't thinking about the relationship carefully enough. They just kind of felt like they were there. And a lot of times it felt like he was like underlining, like, here's a photograph of what I'm talking about. So I'm putting this out there provocatively so that you can then like smack me down here. But convince me of the value of the photographs here, because except for a few cases, there were a few cases where I felt like, okay, this is really adding something. Actually, one of those was like the weird page length spread of him, what I presume to be the temple um, that he's taking a picture of the temple of Jerusalem Mm -hmm. that the guy's making. Um, I thought that was pretty striking. I obviously understand the point of the Rembrandt in there. But in a lot of other times, I just felt like I'm not sure why you're bothering to add this in here. So maybe make a case for the photographs as a part of and as an important part of the text of the book and not just a sort of afterthought. Because they're obviously there. Obviously, they're there for a reason and they are distinctive enough that people talk about that when they talk about Sabal. I know somewhere that the writer Garth Risk Hallberg makes a nice defense of the pictures and their use in Sebald. Um, and I also, Cern, was originally of the opinion like, okay, they're just kind of blurry, bad photos. Like, are they hipster photos? Are they like ironically cool or something? Is this just like a thing I don't get? You know, like what what is the point of it? But I do think that the formatting of them is something that translator and author like often took great care to make arranged somewhat precisely for the fact that they often like comment on what's being said in the way that it seems to sort of elusively flow from one thing to the next the pictures are also supposed to do that and they're supposed to kind of reify or take us out of what's being said in a kind of nice um jump that provides some insight in some way so like the the roger casement writing becomes the whole both pages you know and you know on the one hand it reminds you like okay obviously you're reading somebody's writing to 
for a full like on a full page you're also for most of the book looking at pictures on a full page but also in some ways it's like his signature upon the world is what we're thinking about in this excavation we're doing of him and also i think there's a little literal excavation of casement that's being talked about right so the the guy's bones are literally being dug up and moved his papers are also like notorious and literally being dug up and then we're kind of getting the just somewhat indecipherable handwriting of him super zoomed in and so it's purposely meant to kind of draw us in to like the brute fact of the sort of smoking gun of his life and his sexuality and who he was and what he meant but as we do that it's also this like blurry image and I personally cannot like read it very well just looking at it and that's I think part of the point that this is the smoking gun you know it's this blurry zoomed in image that's like really hard to read you know that that's also like that foggy aspect of history that I was talking about before like and you know sometimes you know someone could say oh these are all metaphors I've kind of seen before thought about before perhaps but I mean this is kind of one of those instances where I was like okay this is obviously all intentional on Sebald's part and we're moving a little bit from book ways of thinking about meaning to kind of like contemporary art museum ways of thinking about like what a picture is what writing is where handwriting is decipherable and not and what materials you need to kind of prove something about a person and then it ends with his signature you know which like Derrida and others will talk about you know the ways the signature like performs your authenticity somehow your signature is supposed to be this unique stamp of yourself upon a piece of paper and throughout time and so Sebald's thinking about that too you know he's placing that all out there that's kind of to me the most like like clearest example of okay these pictures are are trying to do something that you know a metaphor might do for a different writer I was thinking as I was rereading it um this time that you know would I enjoy this as much without the photographs and I would because I love his writing and that's 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 the truth of it but I also think that you know, Carl's right on that there is a really important reason those are there a thematic reason and it's not a single reason it's sort of flexible depending on the context in which is presented so the Thomas Brown chapter with the Rembrandt painting is it's there for reasons because it's being close read the casement one I think is an excellent example of like that that Carl was just talking about of something that's there because it's giving you a sort of personal look into someone that even the photographs of him as a person don't do and it's also commenting on the indecipherability of the historical record and and that, but then it ends with that signature of him as like this real person who had these real desires who did had these real fights and was was killed for them and then who's exhumed and reburied and so on but i also think like to go back to some old school film and photograph photography um theory like andre bazan that there's a sort of indexical quality to the photographs that's meant to be both like it's true that they're indexical and they're records of history that are free of subjectivity but it's also obviously not true that they're free of subjectivity and that they're blurry they're personal they're manipulated one of them contains him and if it's a book about capturing history here he has not only his writing but like the eye the mechanical eye that can capture those things and those two only lead to this sort of flexible changeable thing that really depends on the context in which it's presented can we pick up on that because i i do think one of my favorite 
pictures in the book is the picture with Sebald himself in it, which happens at this fascinating moment. It's very close to the end of the book. And you talked about the mechanical I, I want to talk about a different I, which is the first person that he uses here. And it comes together in this sort of magical moment here. He's been talking about Chateaubriand and how he planted all these trees in this place. And this is him speaking as Chateaubriand in the first person. Now he says, they are still so small that I provide them with shade whenever I step between them and the sun. But one day when they have grown, they will give shade to me and look after me in my old age, much as I looked after them in their youth. I feel a bond unites me with these trees. I write sonnets, elegies and odes to them. They are like children. I know them all by name. And my only desire is that I should end my days amongst them. Period. Dash. This picture was taken at, and then we have a picture of Sebald leaning against a tree, and then the, t- the page turn, Ditchingham about 10 years ago on a Saturday afternoon when the manor house was open to the public in aid of charity. The Lebanese cedar which I am leaning against, unaware still of the woeful events that were to come, is one of the trees that were planted when the park was laid out, and most of which, as I have said, have already disappeared. He suddenly, like, placed himself in the historical record, a bit like Waldo or something, right? Like, and there's a very Waldo-esque picture because it's, it's a little bit far away. It's not super clear again. Like, he's there, but he, he's almost, like, falling into the tree and being absorbed by it, right? And so it's this fascinating moment where, and he does this throughout. He keeps slipping into the first person when he's, like, quoting, quoting what other people are saying. And there's like this disappearance of Sebald into the fabric of his own text, right? And I, I kind of feel like that's there's going the on here. There's the picture of the fabrics. Too, yes, like yes. There's a picture of the fabrics. Right. My point that the, the pictures. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> well, you just used a that's, metaphor. That's good. That's good. That's like it. good. Come on. It's it's all tied together. We're weaving it all together here. But yeah, he's like disappearing into the fabric of the text itself, and I think there's something really strange and alluring about the way that he does this. That like. There's always this slippage of other people into his own brain where he's like absorbing them into the eye. But then at this this one particular moment, he sort of dares to put himself into his own text and is out there for everyone to see before he like quickly fades away again. So I, do, I think there's something to that. I, I'm more convinced now, have you, Carl, that the pictures are doing something there, even if maybe not all of them seem 100% necessary. I do love uh, that that moment with the photograph of Sabal himself too. It has that sort of characteristic, rare but characteristic, orthographic in, like thing that he does, where he has the period ending a thought and then a dash in the middle of a paragraph that continues mm-hmm. some other part of the story. And it's like a logical point to have a new paragraph almost every time, but he never puts it as the beginning of a new paragraph. It's as if he wants to sink into that thing in his own narration, as you're pointing out. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of you know if we're thinking about Middlemarch of. Victorian literature of David Copperfield to Mr. Dick, who has Charles the first's thoughts impeding upon his own mind. Um, <laughs> and he has to set them on a kite in order to get rid of them that there's this sort of, yeah, these things are impeding on who he is all at all times. But it's, it's like we were talking about with Borges last time a little bit. He's also kind of comfortable thinking that's, that's who I am though, is this, these things that have come before me and these things that are read by me. Like that, that makes me up and I make them up in, in reading it sort of in a romantic way. That seems like a great place to end both this book and this season. So we'll close out for now, but we want to say thank you to all of the listeners who've stuck with us since the beginning of this season, gone all the way through thank middle you. March through all the various books we've thank been you. 
all around the world, all throughout history, and we've had a good, a good time. Um, we will be back with season three. We are plotting, scheming at this very moment what's coming next for the pod, but it'll be something good. Just a reminder, there is just a tad more, a little amuse-bouche at the end of your night here as we do one final episode of Postmodern Food Factory. Enjoy that. But we will say then, until next season, we will let Cat Keyboard play us out. Welcome to Postmodern Food Factory. Welcome listeners, you've made it this far to the final episode of Postmodern Food Factory, Season 2, The Reader's Karamazov. To close out this season... We couldn't not bring back an absolute classic. You may remember from an earlier episode, we tasted the delights of the Bud Light Seltzer Fall Flannel Pack. We are back now. They keep churning them out seasonally. We are back with the Bud Light Ugly Sweater Christmas Pack of Seltzers. Um, In this pack, again, are four flavors. We will be sampling them, roughly speaking, in order of transcendence. So we're going to start with cranberry. Seems like a, a relatively normal seltzer flavor you might drink of your own accord. Then I think we're going to move uh, to uh, cherry cordial, about which there's been some debate about what exactly that means. Controversial. Um, controversial. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get there. Uh, and then sugar plum, which we're getting airier and airier. And then finally... The Frankenstein's monster of this cast, something called Seltzer Nog. If we don't big make it out alive, Nog. readers. Got big hopes. Yep. High hopes. All right. So um, I think this, the setup here is pretty straightforward. We did these last yeah. uh, a, a couple of episodes ago, but these are, these are hard seltzers. They are Bud Light branded. They've got weird sort of like uh, 80s arcade game designs on them. What these are? These are ugly sweater stitchings. They look like they look like Galaga to me, my friend. Uh, they do. I, I second that. They're pretty weak uh, design, but and especially well compared the to the fall flannel pack. Yeah, the fall flannel pack had it going on. Yeah. The cranberry um, ugly sweater flavor and design is that person who comes to the ugly sweater party with like a normal sweater on Ugh. that's like just a little old, and it's like. What are you doing? What's the ugliest sweater you've ever had? I love sweaters, so I've had quite a bit of uh, flair in my sweater game over the years. Unsurprising. I had a friend uh, at an ugly sweater party who had a sweet, uh, fully uh, realized golf scene with a guy like driving off a tee mm-hmm. into a Nintendo-looking like green and water hazard. Um, real, really beautiful sweater. I um, this was not strictly like a Christmas ugly sweater, but I did have a sweater at one point, I believe, in college, 
that was pretty incredible. It was like brown on the bottom half and like orange on the top half and it looked almost like a sunrise and then it was like a seagull across the middle like right on your chest area it was it looked yes it was like puke had come up from somewhere and there was a seagull emerging from it well so now we have to get into a question about ugly sweaters that's a sort of a ruskin victorian aesthetics question of should an ugly sweater depict something in nature or reality or should it be a pattern that is abstract (laughs) I think I think either would do. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm ideal a, ugly sweater. I'm more of a pattern. Ideas. I'm a I'm more of a picture person. I like the because I think that that has a great degree of possibility for just how ugly you're going to get. The abstract oh, yeah. patterns are fine, but I feel like there is a limit to how strange and bizarre and awful you can get with those. I also like a bit of texture on my ugly sweaters. So like oh, yeah. little like fuzzy balls sticking out, things like that. Beautiful tassels maybe that, in your yeah, that's the nipple really area. Yeah, that's a ugly sweater game at the, at the ugly sweater party. Yeah. I, I threatened my wife with um, buying a, there's like a, a company that sells these upscale like $300 sweaters. They have one of Babar and I really want to get it. And this is like, this is why I would be a terrible rich person because I would spend my money on things like Babar sweaters. If I yeah, could. Unlike all those good rich people who spend their money on useful things. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah. Closet full of Babar sweaters. Why Babar? I don't know. It was just there. I love Babar. All right. Uh, speaking of the horrors of the Belgian uh, colonialism. All right. Let's bring it back and uh, actually start sampling these wonderful winter wonderlands. So we're doing cranberry first. Yeah. It is the only one I noted without stevia leaf extract, so I may not puke this time around on this one. So I'm going to open mine. That smells fine. <clears throat> smells like oh, yeah. seltzer. I can a feel, lot of cran. I can feel my bowels loosening already. Um, <laughs> or is it tightening? I can't remember. What does cranberry juice do? Does it loosen or tighten? Prevents no, you from getting UTIs. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it smells. I like cranberry, and I will drink this probably. It smells pretty good. <laughs> you have to drink it. It's part of our. I know, but I mean, like, I would drink this of my own show, accord, my friend. Oh, you're just gonna go in? I'm just going in. Take oh, that time. is not. It smells better <laughs> than it tastes. It smells better than it tastes. It doesn't really taste like much of anything, honestly, which is fine. It's actually fine. That's a good. That's a good cran seltzer. Yeah, it's totally fine. It doesn't taste a lot like cran to me. No, it's so it tastes weird. more like cherry to me, actually, which is weird. Definitely. I think I just think mm. it tastes like it because it smells like it. Yeah, the smell is very much like a cran cranberry, like an ocean spray in your face. <laughs> but the taste is like. Ooh, what was your cran cut drink from Ocean Spray? Raz, like a teenage kid. Raz, baby. You you would be Raz. Cran great. Cranberry, oh god, cran grape! You Midwestern. I'll still drink cran, cran grape. I'm the grandma of us all. Cran apple, baby. Ooh. <laughs> okay, solid, solid. I actually do like regular, just regular cranberry cocktail. I'm a fan. Yeah, hundred like percent juice. Yeah, it's good. What about a Thanksgiving cranberry <laughs> sauce out of the can? I'm not a cranberry sauce fan, actually. Right. No, I like that. I do like a chutney. I'll like... jiggle it out of that that oh. that can for me. It adds color to the plate. In it adds sweetness to the plate. It's a part of a plate. It's good. Mm. <laughs> no thanks. 
All right. All right. We're ready to move on. <laughs> kind of unremarkable. Yeah, pretty unremarkable. But that's, I mean, that's probably the, that's that's the ceiling of what. Yeah, the ceiling of what we're getting here with these. <laughs> okay, so we're doing the cherry cordial next. Is that right? So, okay, Friedrich, I need you to explain this controversy to us. Um, we had some debate here as to what exactly this cherry cordial is supposed to be. So the, the taste might reveal the answer to us, but I was like, is it a cherry cordial like a a cordial liqueur that's flavored like cherry, or is it? A cherry cordial, the well-known Queen Anne or whatever candy that's a chocolate-covered cherry with some sort of liqueur in it. Yeah, so this is like a, a very big sticking point for me here. I had assumed it was the cherry liqueur, which would be bad enough. But if it is a chocolate-covered cherry, I probably <laughs> will throw up on air. It can't be a chocolate-covered cherry. We're going to see. We're going to find out. <laughs> Are you telling the good people at Bud Light what they can and cannot do? <laughs> they will defy that. It smells like it might be a chocolate-covered cherry. Oh, it does. It is. It's chocolate-covered cherry. <laughs> oh, 100% chocolate. You were right, oh, Friedrich, and I'm so sad. Yeah, oh, That's a that's a heavy <laughs> chocolate scent. Yes. Oh, it smells like a, somebody like farted a Tootsie Roll into this. <laughs> I want this with the marshmallow fall pack. Yeah. I want the... <laughs> no. yeah, that's a good combo. Okay, are we doing this? I'm, I, I got to do it because I'm going to. Oh, down the hatch! I can't believe you were right about this for you. Oh, ooh, that's so bad. I like it. No, <laughs> I think I might be with Carl on this one. <laughs> it has the perfect artificial cherry flavor of a um, a laffy taffy. Mm. Oh no, no, sorry, I'm wrong. An airhead. Oh my gosh. It's so, really making me feel weird after so, <laughs> after it's gone. I still I like my mouth is like. Is there a chocolate cherry flavor in your? It's mouth a weird still? one. Chocolate cherry always. You wrestle within me. Um, <laughs> when I was in um college, we had somehow a in in my open mic night over here. <laughs> in uh, in my main building where we were in Chapman Hall where the they shoved all the humanities people. There was a tree of life reference. It was a tree of life reference. Sorry, Um, they had a they had a coffee vending machine, and I became strangely addicted to the cinnamon mocha from this coffee. You put in like fifty cents, and you get out this like fifty year old coffee, and it it tasted like after throw up. But I couldn't stop drinking them. Like I could not stop. I got one every day. I was like cinnamon mocha. I'm getting this like. Like, you know, the the leftover throw up in your mouth taste. I just, I got sort of strangely addicted to it. That's what this is reminding me of. It's like that, that I'm glad weird, we're doing like, this. <laughs> I'm glad we're doing this and talking about this because I just got over the stomach flu. No, <laughs> it's good sorry. to be remembering all of it. Sorry, Friedrich. <laughs> it's my own, that's my, my own burden. Should I put a trigger warning on this for you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this should is... be, this should be terrible. And yet it's sort of like, it's just bad. I, don't I know. somehow don't. Having said all that, don't hate it. I mean, it's like, you're gonna be a, you're gonna get one out. I'm gonna put a vending machine outside your house with these. <laughs> I'm gonna every day, man. Make, make that money. <laughs> all right, are you all ready to move on to sugar plum? Oh yeah, big hopes. Have we determined what a sugar plum is? Is it just a sugared <laughs> plum? Because that's very disappointing. I don't know. I guess so. Is this like a Tur- is this like a Turkish delight situation where every kid who read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is like, 
I'm going to find some Turkish delight. It was good enough for Edmund to sell his soul. And then you eat Turkish delight, and it's like, this is very disappointing. I actually kind of like <laughs> Turkish delight, for the record, but most people who encounter it are like, what the hell? Well, this is great based on our previous discussion of what a cherry cordial is. Uh, according to what I'm looking at, the plum and sugar plum can refer to an actual plum or not. <laughs> <laughs> and just the shape of the hardened candy. Oh, boy. Okay. So it could be a literal sugared plum. Or it could, or just, it could be a, just be a bunch of sugar in the shape of a plum. A simulacra there. Okay, good. All right, we doing this? I'm opening it. Doing the best to rid myself of that chocolate taste. Yeah, that's true. Mmm... Hmm. Not inspired by the smell here. Oh, nope. Something sharp in it that's sort of a weird metallic. Maybe I'm smelling the can. It reminds me a little bit of like those um, the 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 um the scented markers. <laughs> oh yeah. That you may or may not have sniffed too hard <laughs> once upon yeah. a time. Yep. It actually is remarkably no pun intended mark uh like the oh my god. <laughs> All right. Are we down the hatching this? I'm going to... I'm gonna. This can't... This one can't be good. What the... That's really... Just bizarre. It's just plum. It's just like plum seltzer. I feel like I'm drinking like liquefied old lady right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's where there's originals, baby. <laughs> Yeah, it's like potpourri. It's just... yeah, potpourri is really accurate too. Yeah, it's a scent that you don't want to taste. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm coming around though. I don't hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna drink. It's like drinking perfume or something. Like I gotta drink this one with the cranberry one to kind of see what I. F- what I really think here. All right. Ooh, the dialectic. I will say none of these so far have been as hideously offensive as some yeah. of the things we tried in the fall final pack. Totally agree. They, it's they just cooled like... it down for winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, my hopes are riding high on the seltzer nog though. So. Yeah, this could I be guess brutal. I, I, I kind of am changing my mind here in sugar plum beats cranberry for me yeah the sugar plum i thought i mean i think if you want one slightly fruity sugary seltzer the sugared plum is the one to go i'm ready for seltzer nuggets just staring right. at me like it's it's this this is really what they're like again this is like why the, people are buying this exactly Let's be real exactly it's it like looks, when you put the looks, funky flavor in the jelly belly. It's like exactly. this is what people buy it for. The color of the can is like that great, you haven't drank water all day, pea color. Mm. It's reminded me of like a bad New Year's Eve party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. St. Louis Blues colors. Yep. <laughs> all right. Here it goes. I'm scared to even smell it, to be honest. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. It's reminding me of that marshmallow. Yep. Oh, Carl, it's so bad. Carl's going to so drink this down. 
Do you guys even like eggnog? I love I love, I eggnog. love eggnog. I'm a staunchly pro eggnog person. Ho- homemade What's eggnog? Egg- Hell yeah. Both. I, I will drink the garbage right out of the, the carton. I'll just like... <laughs> so good. I'm, I agree that as, homemade is much better, but I'm still going to... As Friedrich down. knows, I, I even like that like Evan Williams eggnog. It's like <laughs> six bucks at the grocery yes. store. They always I put it up in the cardboard stuff. display every year. Yeah. That's just for me. I don't ever see another person buying that except for myself. <laughs> All right, we doing or, this? were you going to ask a question about eggnog before we drink these about uh, which which eggnog or something? Just do you like eggnog? Which eggnog do you like? <laughs> I like I the like Evan Williams. I like them all. Man. All right, good good question for me to reiterate there. <laughs> You're not going to answer. You just go in. I like homemade eggnog. I don't really like carton eggnog, and I don't really like the Evan Williams, but homemade eggnog with. Uh, a little brandy in it. Oh, baby. I like yeah. taking the... Yeah. So what I do is I take the boxed nog and I mix it with a little bit of milk and then I pour some bourbon in there. That's that's pretty good. That's one of good, I'm... the classic Soren like homemade remedies that I love. Like your <laughs> method of making yogurt is one of those things too. I yeah. just... I love it. That's what I do. Well, I'm glad we've all tried eggnog and none of us are agnostic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> ha, ha. Oh. Oh, terrible. All right, are we drinking this? Let's do it. Let's Cheers. Do it. Oh, that's, that's an abomination to, in the name of eggnog. I don't hate it. You know what? So, oh. Speaking of my weird homemade Heathen. things. Heathen. Speaking of my weird homemade things. Blasphemy. There was a dish that we had all the time growing up that I thought was the greatest thing. And looking back, it's one of those things that you realize, like, oh, I'm pretty sure we had oh, this. Oh, your like, family's weird? Well, <laughs> that too. But also, it was like, I'm pretty sure we had this, like, at the end of the month when money was running out. And it was, yes. it was, we called it um, um, rice, cinnamon, sugar, and milk, which is what it was. It was just. <laughs> you don't have a name for it no, other no, than that? It was that? a bowl of rice. And we would pour, we'd pour milk over it. You come on, just sugar. change the story for our sake. No. Turn it into no. a Sabald thing. No. We called it Monster Mush. Okay. It was this, this, and this. No. So no. You take we, a bowl of rice, we, you pour milk over it, and then you put we called it sugar starch, on it. starch, eggs, biscuits, and gravy, because that's what it was. And it was delicious, and it, I thought it was the greatest thing, and I'm pretty sure it's just like my parents trying to use up leftovers to stretch the budget out. <laughs> we called it That's what this reminds sugar. me of, though. Rice, cinnamon, sugar, milk. So what, do you, what else do you need, man? We're good, plain, literal folks. What kind of kids are you that you just call it all of the ingredients? <laughs> Though, to be fair, my like my like weird thing that I loved as a kid was um, tomato soup with cut up hot dogs and a bunch of beans in it. <laughs> <laughs> and we just called it bean and hot dog soup. <laughs> oh, Dad. <laughs> hey, Dad, can we have bean hot dog soup? <laughs> Well, bean and hot dog soup has a ring to it. You're like sugar, starch, particles, cubes, and ice, like whatever the heck you guys are eating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a weird, like, grocery list. Yeah. Friedrich, you got any good ones? Any... (laughs) Nothing to compete with. Things that that were rustled up on the prairie back when you were a child? (laughs) I mean, we definitely just ate a lot of, like, uh, as a child who was picky, ate a lot of cinnamon sugar toast. Do you ever have cinnamon sugar toast? Oh, yeah. 
yeah. Um, especially when Can you're you sick. Get better names. <laughs> <laughs> we and then buttered. It. And then we'd have buttered noodles. Yeah, and as a kid, I would eat know. buttered rice because I was just like, just give me plain rice with some butter on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. My kids love that. Man, nothing that competes with either of those that I can think of on the top of my off the top of my head. You know what we used to do too? We would take this is a pretty weird. We'd t- we'd take we'd go pick blueberries because we lived in a very blueberry growing area of Michigan, and we'd freeze them, and then we'd pour milk over them and we'd eat that, and we thought it was like this delicious frozen treat. That's idyllic. Yeah, that is that is a treat. It sounds like we're from like the you're from like. 1812 is when he grew up. <laughs> we did have the we did have the um prairie home, not prairie home companion sorry that's that's your area uh the little house in the prairie cookbook and yeah. we were obsessed wow. with we were obsessed with making the thing the dessert where you just take a bunch of snow and you pour maple syrup over it we thought that was the coolest thing in the world <laughs> that sounds awful <laughs> okay i'm gonna bring it back to the century where we really grew up um for some reason, my family <laughs> was really into Amway, and so because of uh, like things that you got in Amway were just like not real food, we got like Gatorade packets. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And so, as kids, we would just like put the packets um, with just a little bit of water, like hyper condensed, because we thought that would give us like all of the electrolytes, yes. and we'd. We'd put it in ice cube trays and put little <laughs> toothpicks in it and have, like, super Gatorade sickles. Love it. Think of that cool name. Anyway, this we definitely seltzer nog is awful. We, I hate it. We definitely had the mix-in Gatorade, too, because it was cheaper. Um, oh, yeah. You get yeah. That, big, that big pack of it, and you're, like, mm, yeah, scooping yeah. it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I love it. The, the All Gatorade... Right. The, uh, the excuse me, the seltzer nog is really bad. I haven't chip, bad. Uh, chimed in on that yet either, but it's pretty bad. It's huge it smells like spice, I guess, a vague spice, doesn't it? Not yeah, like no, a no, it's spice, it, but a vague. No, spice. no, um, no. It's got that. It's got that a little bit like a. It'll turn your eyes blue. Uh, like a, it does taste. I mean, I think what's reminding me of is like a rice pudding. Like you get that vague hint of like the cinnamon or whatever in the. Yeah. Definitely, definitely, it is made with, flavor, with malted rice, so. But then the flavor is just... It's not good. Indescribable. Ineffable. <laughs> Carl, do you have some sort of fancy name to give this? Ambrosia well, of the gods. I wouldn't call it, you know, living high on the nog. Because it's not. <laughs> I know you guys live for those this... witticisms that oh. I have for you. This is getting pretty obnoxious. <laughs> I was gonna have to say boo. <laughs> All right, do we have a do we have any ratings, gentlemen, before we go? It's all the sugar plum. That's the best. That's the only drinkable one for me. Oh, I thought the three that weren't the nog were somewhat <laughs> drinkable to varying degrees, um, depending on your mood, <laughs> depending on which your level night. of self loathing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Depending on where you are in your advent calendar. Um, the nog. Oh yeah, rate bad. them based on where they should be in the advent calendar. All right. All right. I mean, if you opened up your advent calendar, you punched that little cardboard hole, and you opened up, and you saw like sugar plum seltzer. How would you feel, knowing how it tastes? 
Okay. It's like a it's like a middle of Advent. We're going strong. This is a good chocolate. It's How big is this Advent calendar to hold this like is it like a thimble <laughs> full of it's just like a communion cup. Yeah. It's like a <laughs> Not a shot glass, Luther, but a communion cup. That's, that's, that's the most Lutheran the Midwestern thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You're all drinking out of the chalice, that's right. Yeah, get a real exactly. chalice advent calendar, bro. <laughs> I, I was going to go with like, like a, an advent calendar where you pop it open and get a wafer. <laughs> wafer. That would be great. Anyway, oh sorry you're about to say something. That's even I, more Lutheran. Wow. I was going to go with like a, a Michael Caine in Muppet Christmas Carol rating scale. So like the sugar plum is like at Christmas morning where he's mm. like, gets the, the gets the little rabbit to buy all the turkey, the big turkey, right? That That's like, it's reasonable. We can do this. We can work with this. You right? gotta do this in your Michael Caine voice, otherwise it doesn't count. <laughs> or do we fall down, sir? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Uh, sorry. Um, Size of a tangerine. <laughs> um, the, I failed um, you, sir. I failed you. The, 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 the nog is like when he throws that rabbit out into the snow at the beginning of the movie where he's trying to sing him Good King Wenceslas. Have you guys not seen Muppet Christmas Carol? He's like throws him out and throws not the Not recently enough. Oh my gosh. It's like, I mean, I want to see a hol- it, but I just haven't classic. seen it for a while. A holiday classic. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. The other two, you know, it's like, I don't know, like the, the, the cranberries maybe, like he's he's confronting the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The guy, the creepy guy <laughs> in the robe. He's like, mm. See, the, yeah. the cranberry and the sugar plum are like Marley and Marley for me. <laughs> Because, like, yeah, they're gnarly, bad guys. Gnarly. Yeah. But, like, you kind of like the song. They go together. Each of them is, like, okay. <laughs> oh. and Marley. Okay, I'm sticking with the Edmund calendar, okay? The, the <laughs> Nog is like, and this is a true story, when, when you were a kid and the Advent calendar Christmas chocolate is obviously the biggest one. And you're waiting all Advent to open it, and then you open it on Christmas Day, and it's gone, and it becomes a family mystery as to what happened to it, which you learn only as an adult was your dad ate it because he <laughs> oh was jonesing for some chocolate. Like this is the most Carl story I've Christmas. ever heard. This is like the most power dad Carl thing. Refuse to admit to it, even though it was super obvious for years that nothing else could have possibly happened other than like some sort of time loop situation. The the dad of the family downed it and refused to fess up. Uh, that's what the nog seltzer is like. Um, so conjuring up some memories here for you, Carl. The cherry and the um, cranberry are just like, you know, when somebody acts like accidentally opened one of your uh, advent calendar like um, tabs early, and then you get to it like a week later, and it's just like stale. It's like not great chocolate anymore. That's what mm. those ones are like. And then the sugar plum is just like a solid middle of advent, decent shaped chocolate. It's like pretty. It's okay did what it had to do see i know you all are weak americans because your advent calendars had chocolate in them mine was just you opened it up and there was a bible verse there (laughs) (laughs) so what more would a child need (laughs) just a bible verse and some rice cinnamon sugar and milk (laughs) 
and for Sully Christmas did. you got like a like you got like a square of calico to add to your quilt or something. <laughs> Jesus, we're living off the land, my friend. <laughs> uh, little house on the prairie, man. That exactly. <laughs> Sometime I'll tell you the story of the, when we visited the little house in the prairie uh, monuments, and somebody like never mind. I'll leave it there. It involves an outdoor toilet. Whoa, but. <laughs> season cliffhanger. <laughs> Yeah, join us next time. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there, friends. Um, I know we, we don't want to leave you because that means the end of the season, but um, I think it's time for us to, to, to head out for now. So season's greetings to you all. Have a good one. I yes, hope happy Better holidays. than the experience of uh, drinking some seltzer not. But uh, we'll leave you there. We'll see you next time. This has been another episode of Postmodern Food. Factor.